Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 11.9 FM. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, here to keep you up to date on all things Limestone Local News. To start us off, we have an update on one of last week's stories. The Kingston Health Coalition organized a community-led referendum on healthcare privatization with in-person voting taking place over the weekend. The question posed on the ballot was, do you want our public hospital services to be privatized to for-profit hospitals and clinics? Prior to the referendum, I sat down with co-chair of the Kingston Health Coalition, Ross Sutherland, who discussed some of the goals of this referendum. You know, this is this is a part of a process. You know, uh, I think what our goal here is, we'd obviously love the government to change their mind and backtrack. Um, I think it's unlikely they will backtrack with what they've done, but we could easily slow them down. And that's very important because if you keep the number of for-profit clinics relatively small, the damage is similarly relatively small. And um, then people can, you know, revisit this question in the next provincial election. Um, you know, the federal government is already fining the province because they're allowing these for-profit clinics sector bill because they know that these clinics are charging patients to go there when it's illegal. I mean, it's illegal under the Canada Health Act. For the full interview with Sutherland, you can head to our podcast network at podcast.cfrc.ca and listen to the previous episode of Kingston Currents posted there. That is episode two. The results are officially in and Kingston and area residents voted no to privatizing our public hospitals to for-profit clinics and for-profit hospitals in the referendum last weekend. 10,394 residents voted at 17 polling stations and other advanced polls that were staffed by 119 volunteers. Dozens more local residents helped during the six-week-long campaign. The combined results were 10,256 votes no to privatization, 138 votes yes, and 10 spoiled ballots. Over 98% of people said no to privatization to for-profit clinics and hospitals. The referendum was organized locally by the Kingston Health Coalition as a part of a province-wide vote organized by the Ontario Health Coalition. There were 1,000 voting stations across Ontario in addition to online voting options. Health Coalition volunteers stood at the corner of Princeton Concession this morning at 10 a.m. to reveal the vote results to the public and thank the people of Kingston for voting. There was also a short public announcement and comments from Joan Jardine, co-chair of the Kingston Health Coalition. Here's a brief clip from the announcement. People love our healthcare system. They know there are solutions. They know that what we need to do is build up what we have. And we, uh, we're on our side. We ask that the government, uh, all parties, listen to the people. As you can hear, many folks also showed their support by honking as they drove by. Unfortunately, the audio was a bit difficult to hear, but in her presentation, Jardin had to say, The local results show that our community is united in opposition to the government plans to move work out of our public, non-profit hospitals into for-profit corporate clinics. Our community understands that there is space in the public system to improve care for patients. There are many innovative ideas, great staff, and wonderful communities and volunteers that can be mobilized to support nonprofit care. The real problems start with a lack of government will, systemic systemic underfunding, and a 30-year push to for-profit corporations to deliver health care, while causing significant staff reductions in public systems. Further privatization will only make the problems worse. Kingston and the island's MPP Ted Shu officially launched his campaign to become the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party on Sunday. Shu, who also represented Kingston as a member of parliament from 2011 to 2015, was joined by supporters at Portsmouth Olympic Harbour for the announcement. Shu told the crowd that he will give the Liberal Party a fresh start to earn back the trust of Ontario voters. Shu worked in science, finance, and sustainable energy, including 10 years in finance and business management with Banque Nationale de Paris and Morgan Stanley before he began his political career. 
He has traveled Ontario for the last eight months, visiting Ontarians in 70 ridings. People told him they're being left behind by the current government. Doug Ford's Ontario cannot compete on the world stage. Why? He asked the crowd. We are struggling with cost of living, housing, health care, mental health and addictions, elder care, education disruption, labor shortages, debt, and climate change. Shu said a strong economy is needed to tackle the problems Ontario faces after five years of conservative leadership. But first, the Liberal Party needs to earn back Ontarians' trust. Shu believes that the party needs to connect and find common ground with voters in every corner of the province, whether they live in rural, urban, or remote ridings, especially during this era of increasing political polarization. An authentic connection with voters, that's how I believe we will give the Liberal Party a fresh start, a Liberal Party more people can trust again, said Shu. Ted Shu is one of seven Ontario Liberal Party MPPs sitting in the Ontario Legislative Assembly. In the 2022 Ontario election, Ted successfully won back his home riding of Kingston and the Islands from the New Democratic Party. He currently holds critic roles for the Liberal Caucus in the following areas, energy, mines, natural resources and forestry, and citizenship and multiculturalism. Be sure to tune in to Kingston Currents next week on June 6th at 5pm to hear an interview with MPP Ted Shu fresh after this announcement. Next up in local news, in mid-May, the Kingston Frontenac and Lennox and Addington Community Drug Strategy Advisory Committee was exploring decriminalization of illicit substances for personal use by conducting local community consultation. Community members were asked to complete an online survey and share their thoughts on decriminalization. The CDSAC has also been hosting focus groups throughout Kingston, connecting specifically with some of those who are most affected by the drug poisoning crisis. While the survey has been completed and we await the initiatives which may arise from the results, I sat down with Sarah Tryon, KFLNA's public health promoter, to speak not only about the survey but decriminalization in general and the drug poisoning crisis in Kingston. Here's what Sarah had to say. So just to start us off, would you like to introduce yourself and your role with KFLNA? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Sarah Tryon. Um, I am a program planner here at um, KFLNA Public Health. I'm a representative on the Community Drug Strategy, which um, is a group of um, service providers and stakeholders as well as people with lived experience in our community um, that are working together to address issues that people who use substances face. And um, I'm a, yeah, I'm a representative from that group. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the Community Drug Strategy from its conception in 2017 to kind of where it is at now. So um, the community drug strategy came together to look into the opioid crisis that we're uh, facing in the, the KFLNA community. They, we have a number of uh, participants on this group. It's a, it's a table that includes um, service providers in addictions and mental health uh, support services, as well as law enforcement, um, the education community, and um, as well as people who have lived experience. And um, together we've um, addressed a number of things um, over the years uh, related to uh, substance use and um, the health effects um, that people who use substances are experiencing. And, um, you know, stigma is one of the, the large topics that we're addressing right now and working towards um, raising awareness around the stigma that people who use substances face um, for their substance use. And decriminalization is actually one of the other topics of um, particular interest to this group um, that we're working on as well at this time. Thank you for all that background. And now that we have that context, I'd also like to start us off by discussing the current landscape in the KFLNA region. KFLNA has experienced a significant surge in deaths related to opioid use. 
I was wondering if you could provide us with some statistics and your recent findings there to give us a bit of a clearer picture. So we've seen um, uh, a number of deaths uh, in our community related to um, the toxic uh, drug supply um, and opioid use. And um, we've actually had 43 deaths um, related to opioid use in 2020. Now, those numbers aren't uh, a perfect uh, definition of exactly what's happening, but this is based on the information that we're, we're able to pull, um, and that those fatalities have actually increased. There's been a 72% increase of fatalities compared to 2017 and that in 330% increase since 2014. What are some factors in the last decade that have contributed to this increase? So we know that uh, the emergence of fentanyl has been um, really impactful on this community, as well as uh, other drugs and substances in the, in the supply. Um, the tox- toxicity of the supply has really been a challenge um, for people who have experience using substances to know exactly what they're taking and how much to take um, at any given time. Uh, the, their, their supply could be um, contaminated with various drugs and substances, um, which really makes it a little bit of an unknown uh, field out there. And uh, as a result, we're seeing a lot of people um, with injuries as well as, uh, unfortunately, fatalities related to it. Mm-hmm. Are there also some uh, circumstantial factors in the last decade that have contributed to this, like COVID and uh, the current economic downturn we're facing? Yep. So we definitely have seen a large increase since COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be related to um, behaviors and uh, around substance use. Um, we definitely have seen many uh, increases in fatalities since then as well. Um the COVID and some of the, the restrictions that we, we had put in place um, actually exacerbated uh, many of the issues that, you know, substance users already faced around homelessness, um, using alone uh, less safe um, practices in uh, substance use. And, um, you know, when we were, you know, forced to stay inside and away from people, you know, people were hiding their use or they maybe started using more frequently and um, those behaviors really change. So, you know, everybody experienced changes as a result of COVID, um, but people who started using substances or continued using substances, we're seeing a real um, change in those behaviors as well. So we're about to get more into your immediate action items to tackle this, but what are some of the broad objectives and overarching guiding principles of the committee? Yeah, so the Community Drug Strategy um, Advisory Committee um, was formed in March 2017, um, 2017, sorry, in response to um, harmful substance use in the community. Um, These community partners came together to discuss substance use um, from their perspectives and from their organizations and how they're impacted. So the KSLNA Community Drug Strategy seeks to address substance use through the lens of prevention, harm reduction, and treatment. So those are really the the key pillars to the work that we're doing and the lens which we're always looking through. We're going to turn now to your initiatives currently underway in 2023 to attain these goals. So to start us off, there's the stigma reduction strategy, which you sort of mentioned at the beginning that this is a big topic for you right now. Would you like to get into that a little bit? Yeah, so we've um, got uh, a support 
support not stigma um, strategy that's um, looking to reduce the stigma um, and the impact that it has on health and mental well-being of people who use substances um, as well as their friends and family um, because we do know that that stigma really does impact uh, people's health-seeking behaviors um, and the st stigma may result in a decreased use of services, poor quality of services received, and concealment of substance use disorders. So that makes it really difficult to provide appropriate care um, for those individuals. Um, so the, 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 our, our strategy is to reduce substance use stigma um, and make it a priority uh, within our community uh, to work together with our community partners to develop um, just different focused initiatives um, around like what do people know about a stigma, different resources that we, we are developing to educate people um, as well as uh, providing education um, opportunities and platforms. So we've had some speakers come into the community um, to address stigma specifically. Moving on to your ongoing drug policy advocacy, of course, there's constant updates on that. But uh, most recently, you've launched an electronic survey on decriminalization to get perspectives of community members. So um, a part of the community drug strategy's priorities is to look at um, decriminalization. Now, decriminalization is an evidence-based policy that has been in practice for quite a long time in a number of countries, um, as well as some states have now taken on decriminalization. So decriminalization is um, regarding the law around personal possession. So it's not the same as legalization, and it would mean that um, somebody that has uh, a substance on them, so um, whether it be methamphetamine or an opioid, um, you know, cocaine, that they wouldn't be charged. It also wouldn't be taken from them. Uh, but it's not the same as what we saw with cannabis when it was legalized and is now regulated and sold um, in stores. So we've um, looked at this policy and we want to really investigate it in our community. And together we decided a community consultation would be a great first approach to find out what our community members um, are thinking and feeling, what their concerns are, what their perceived harms are around decriminalization in our community. Um, so we've launched this opportunity to hear from our community members through the survey, as well as some of those harder to reach community members, um, particularly those with lived experience um, with substance use, uh, mental health uh, problems, as well as homelessness. And we are uh, connecting with them directly through focus groups. Thank you for uh, getting into the survey itself. I figured we'd go into a bit of the background of decriminalization and that policy. Um, mm -hmm. Give folks some context on what the survey is all about. Um, well, I mean, the current approach doesn't seem to be working. We're not mm -hmm. seeing a change in the number of people who are using substances. We're certainly not seeing a positive change uh, in the number of fatalities or um, health harms that are uh, happening as a result of substance use. So our current strategy doesn't, of prohibition doesn't seem to be working. We know that um, policies that are based in prohibition actually do cause more harms. When we criminalize people for um, their substance use, we are actually putting them into uh, the, the 
legal system and uh, creating a bit more of a cycle of um, reusing substances, not getting the correct support um, that they need to either get out of the cycle of using substances or to get back on their feet for employment or housing. Um, when somebody has that criminal offense, um, on their record, it makes it very difficult to um, prosper and succeed um, the way the rest of the community maybe is able to, um, for maybe simply just using a substance. Um, so it's really important uh, to start looking at our policies and making sure that health is at the forefront of policies and that we're supporting um, people in a healthy way and not criminalizing them. Um, but providing supports and systems in place that are going to um, help people or give people the opportunity for help should they be looking for it um, and not further increase harms as a result of those policies. Mm -hmm, absolutely. There are already sure. examples globally and nationally. Speaking specifically from a policy standpoint, what does decriminalization entail and what would it look like in the KFLNA region? So what decriminalization would look like in our region is exactly what we're trying to find out in our community mm -hmm. consultation. In the survey and the focus groups, um, we're, we're really attempting to get a feel for community readiness as well as um, perceived harms and concerns related to decriminalization as well as um, some information on model development. So when um, you look at decriminalization and looking to make a policy change um, to the, you know, Section 56, which relates to personal possession, um, we actually have to propose uh, what we want the law to look like, how we want it to be in our community. Um, but we also have to have support services in place that's going to support a policy change like that. And so um, in this consultation, we're hoping to find out this information and be able to uh, use it to help us in our next phase, which will actually be moving towards um, education and um, reorienting uh, healthcare systems that are going to be positive um, supports for a decriminalization policy change um, should that happen in our community. So you've definitely put into perspective why it's time for a change and um, why you're reaching out to folks about this issue. Um, but why turn to decriminalization? Could you kind of present us some of the evidence supporting this route? Um, so we know that um, in the communities and the countries where decriminalization has already taken place, um, there's been a, a decrease in the number of uh, drug-related uh, overdoses or toxicity-related um, overdoses, as well as a decrease in bloodborne infections. We've also seen an increase in the number of people who are seeking um, care and treatment services. Um, so it, we also know that it decreases stigma, and um, stigma really has a powerful effect on people's behaviors and their health-seeking behaviors. And so um, we know that if this, this stigma starts to be removed, and we know this from what we've already heard so far in some of the feedback, is that people will feel more open to be able to access services, um, won't be feeling quite as ashamed of their behaviors. Um, we also know that uh, decriminalization saves money on policing, courts, and correctional costs. Uh, it frees up law enforcement resources to be used in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, as I kind of mentioned, it prioritizes health and safety over punishment, um, and it removes those barriers for people who um, need to access care and treatment support services or harm reduction services. Um, 
and uh, it, it overall it can be a really positive effect on the community. However, that being said, it needs to be done in a robust man manner that's going to have a system to support it. It's not as simple as just changing the law. Um, it needs to be in a, in a supportive way and engaging our community partners and our community members is really critical in making that happen. Definitely. And um, going off what you mentioned there at the end, what are some other strategies alongside decriminalization that are necessary for health and safety in our community? Yeah, so we might need to look at um, low barrier services, um, access points, um, continuity of care, um, increasing education on uh, substance use and the people that use substances. Um, let's just say, for example, with our law enforcement or with um, our health services to make sure that we're using that person-centered approach, uh, that we're meeting people where they're at, taking that harm reduction lens of um, understanding that some people may choose to use substances, but that they're um, as equally uh, entitled to health and care and support and dignity as everyone else in our community. And so it's gonna be really important that we um, do that education as we go um, throughout this process. Um, as well as reor reorient some of those um, health and social service um, support systems that are in place right now. We have some wonderful support services in our community, um, but I think we could all agree that a lot of places are at capacity and we need to find a way um, to continue to um, provide the care and services that uh, our community members need. Definitely, and we've seen in BC just in January um, their pilot program with the federal government where uh, they have the exception from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Uh, could something like this or steps towards this kind of change be possible in the KFLNA region in the near future? So that's what we hope to find out. Mm -hmm. um, through this consultation, um, we're asking exactly about that policy change, which would be the decriminalization of uh, personal possession, um, which is an exemption to that law. Um, and so we want to find out what our community members think um, about it. And um, if we hear in our feedback that um, people are in favor um, or people are a little unsure or if they're concerned, you know, then we're able to actually address um, what we hear. So uh, we won't know until we hear from the community exactly what our next steps are. But um, we're preparing for that to be um, a reality in the work that's coming forward, that we should continue to investigate these policy um, options and putting health at the forefront. The feedback received from the community will help inform next steps in responding to the drug poisoning crisis and may inform a Health Canada application to decriminalize personal possession of unregulated substances in the KFLNA region. For more information about decriminalization of drugs, you can head to the KFLNA Community Drug Strategy website or email kfldrugstrategy at gmail.com. You can stay up to date on decriminalization initiatives by following KFLNA CDSAC on Facebook and Twitter. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming, brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next.